Good evening, and welcome to UC Irvine. Tonight, we are pleased to host the national tour of consciousness, creativity, and the brain. Please welcome Robert Roth, Vice President of the David Lynch Foundation. University of California at Irvine. David has been touring the country, East Coast, University of Michigan, University of Pennsylvania, New York University, Yale, Brown, UC, USC, University of California, San Diego, but this campus has been fabulous. We really, really, really The welcome, the kindness, the organization. And I want to thank the Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, a wonderful man, Manuel Gomez, and the chair. The chair of the Department of Education, Michael Martinez. And I got about six emails to be sure to thank Ben Yader, the Assistant Director of Film and Video Center, so thank you. And all the UCI staff and the local organizers and volunteers, I welcome you all on behalf of David. I also welcome those of you who are connected by video streaming and two spillover audiences here at UCI and also through the webcast there's a large number of people at UC Santa Cruz and at Portland State University and, Hoff and the Hoffman Hall, so welcome all of you and everyone watching this via webcast. That's enough. <laughs> We've applauded enough. <laughs> David Lynch loves the process of doing. He has a passion for filmmaking. He has a passion for writing. He has a passion for photography. He has a passion for sculpture, for music. He has a passion for life, for doing. David Lynch also has a tremendous passion for ideas, huge, big ideas that inform those wonderful works that have created Eraserhead, The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, <laughs> Wild at Heart, Lost Highway, The Straight Story, Mulholland Drive, and coming sometime soon, Inland Empire. But David also has a passion for that depth of the creative process 
for that diving within to the source of that creativity that lies at the depth of his being and that lies at the depth of all of our silent, settled consciousness being. Tonight, we have a rare opportunity to have a genius of a man, of a human being, talk to us about the process of doing, about the, about the process of thinking, and about that experience of being. Joining David tonight, coming on the stage, is another great mind and great soul, and that is Dr. John Hagelin. Who world-renowned quantum physicist who has led an, ex an exploration, a scientific exploration into the origins of human consciousness, and he will be giving a scientific commentary, along with the brain researcher Fred Travis, on David's insights and experiences. Now, two last things. One, David did not come with a prepared statement. He has no public speech. He's going to come here and answer your questions right from the beginning. So there's a microphone there, and there's a microphone there, and if you have any questions about any of his films, about consciousness, about anything, because you're going to hear tonight some very big words. In addition to the words about filmmaking, you're going to hear the words pure consciousness. You're going to hear the words enlightenment. You're going to hear world peace. And in the, the legendary statement of Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss, David is going to say, dive within to experience your bliss. I would like to con conclude my welcoming remarks before we welcome David and John with a beautiful statement, short statement, that came from Dudley Andrew was the head of Yale's film department, film studies department, what he said when David spoke there last month. We welcome you, David Lynch. We welcome your fearless look full in the face. The way you looked at the face of the elephant man to get inside. We welcome you, the teller of stories that, whether straight, curved, or twisted, drive deep and downward into the cistern of social experience. We trust you among American filmmakers, for you don't manipulate. Instead, you imagine and you discover. We are proud that an individual can have pursued this hard, this twisting highway in the spiritually desiccated and hostile environment of Hollywood. And we are here to learn how you kept your bearings, kept your vision, and kept sharp your probing imagination in that smog of money and illusion. What does it mean to direct? To administer? To engineer? You are not an engineer of emotion. As a filmmaker, David, you are rather a searcher of self and society. Well, here we are, right now, at this minute. Direct our attention beyond what we know. We're listening intently. Welcome. Would you please welcome David Lynch and John Hayden.
good evening to all of you, and good evening to those in the overflow room, and good evening to Santa Cruz, and good evening to Portland. I will try to answer your questions on film or meditation or consciousness, if you have any. Hi, thanks for taking my questions. Uh, one quick one. Will there be a Lost Highway DVD? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I uh, did the telecine on Lost Highway a couple of years ago, at least. And um, it's very beautiful looking, all ready to go on High Def uh, Master. But uh, the company that uh, had it, I think, got bought and a whole bunch of things like this happened. So I don't know when it will come out. All right, thanks. One a little lengthier, if that's okay. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the, um, the 10 hints in the Mulholland Drive DVD package and <laughs> whose decision that was and how that came about? It was, a, uh, it was meant mainly for the French, who are... <laughs> they're pretty speedy, but um, it was almost like a game uh, to, to see, you know, um, uh, if, if it helped people find their way and that brings up this this thing of um, our intuition and when we we see so many abstract things in life uh, but we're not used to seeing so many of them in film but we all have a certain amount of this intuition and we all can figure things out feel think our way through things and come up with our own conclusions and to me that's a beautiful experience and I like films that hold abstractions that make me dream and feel feel a, a, a solution, feel an interpretation. Great, thank you. Thank you. Hello. Um, my understanding is that you have a foundation for children for transcendental meditation, and I'm wondering this kind of world that we have where kids are being raised with cell phones, they don't have any time to really reflect on their lives. How are you planning on um, like bringing that to um, you know, our youth? It's a, it's a big question. Um, uh, transcendental meditation is a mental technique, very easy and effortless to do, yet supremely profound, in that it allows any human being to dive within, all the way in, through subtler levels of mind and intellect, and transcend and experience this ocean of pure consciousness at the source of thought, source of mind, source of matter. Beautiful, beautiful area. Experiencing this pure consciousness unfolds it, enlivens it. And it's a field, sometimes they call it bliss consciousness. And this is that thing of inner happiness. Inner happiness starts to grow. Consciousness, our ability to understand, our awareness, our wakefulness, all this begins to expand. And I've been to visit uh, two schools, three schools, that have introduced this consciousness-based education. The same knowledge comes in. The only difference is that container of knowledge, that container of understanding, is that students are diving within and unfolding that. Happiness grows. I, uh, there's a school in Detroit, the Nataki School, the kids meditate 10 minutes in the morning together in the gymnasium. 
10 minutes together at, in the afternoon before they go home in the gymnasium. Happy campers, excelling, <laughs> bright, shiny consciousness on these faces, and you don't worry about them. They're self-sufficient. They're doing so beautifully. There's this guy, Doc Rutherford, in Washington, D.C., introduced it to three different schools he's run. He says, I get the staff meditating, I get the teachers meditating, I get the students meditating, and watch it all turn around. Because the schools he started in were filled with violence, filled with problems. Appreciation for life goes like so beautifully in growth. Unbelievable things. There's, you, you turn off the cell phones for a short time in the morning, short time in the evening, dive within and watch life get better and better. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. Does the final cut of Mulholland Drive present the audience with any semblance of what you had intended for the television show? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. That's a, with the weirdest, uh, maybe the weirdest up until this p p particular film I'm working on. But I made Mulholland Drive, as some of you know, for a continuing story on television. So Mulholland Drive was going to be, this, this particular thing was going to be the pilot, which is open-ended and meant to um, make you want to see, you know, more and more. And so uh, ABC saw this, and I heard this story. Um, the man who was making the decision saw it at 6 a.m., watching television across the room, saw the thing on TV, having coffee, and making some phone calls. And he hated what he saw. It bored him. So he cut that, you know, and, and I had it now, and I had the chance, fortunately, to make it into a feature. But I didn't have the ideas. And you don't use meditation, the, the dive within, to catch the ideas then. Then you're expanding the container, and you come out very refreshed, filled with energy and raring to go. And the, and the process is so beautiful. But in this particular case, when I, the day, almost the day I got the go-ahead to turn it into a feature, I had zero ideas how to do that. And I went into meditation, and somewhere about 10 minutes in, like a string of pearls, it came. And it affected the middle, the beginning, and the end. And I felt very blessed. Uh, but that's one time, you know, it happened during meditation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lynch. Um, I, it's, it's kind of a, a two-part question. One, one that I, I have heard that, say, say, how much dreams inspire and influence your work. But I heard somewhere that it's not so much, say, uh, dreams that occur, say, while sleeping as it is, uh, say, daydreaming, dream, dreams while conscious. Okay, so, so that, that's true enough, I suppose. So that was the first part, whether that was true or not. And second of all, say, how much, say, how we could say whether that can be related to your practice of transcendental meditation. Say, does that come out of your practice of transcendental meditation? Say, say linking your dreams, daydreams to, work, to your work. Yes and no. Mm. Um, I love the dream logic, mm -hmm. nighttime dream logic. I love that. Okay. And once in a while, a dream will help you. But daydreaming, I see it as, as catching ideas. Mm. And the thing that I, I like to think about is um, 
you know this this thing of consciousness you know we hear it but it's it's just sounds abstract and we don't really think it's so important but i i promise you the word and what it really means consciousness is the number one ingredient consciousness that ability to know to understand that bliss it's intelligence it's harmony coherence and in Vedic language, consciousness, this field of pure consciousness, is called Atma, the self. It's the self of us. And as Dr. John Hagelin says, from that field, it's also called the unified field at the base of all matter. It's a long answer to your question about dreams. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's, it's oneness. It's us. It's the source. It's there. Mm-hmm. It's always been there. If you can expand that, then these daydreams, they might just... At first, with a certain amount of consciousness, that's what you've got. Consciousness raising groups, we've heard about those. They're not raising consciousness. They're raising information. You get together, you share information. It's not consciousness. Consciousness is a thing that lets you understand and know. It's a different thing. So if you could expand it, when you daydream, you can go deeper. You can catch ideas at a deeper level. You can see deeper into things. You can intuit things better. So I love daydreaming. Ideas to me are the most important things. But how do you catch them? And and daydreaming is one way. Another way is just be on guard. They'll come up and snap you, you know, when you least expect it. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing to catch an idea, and especially one that you fall in love with. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, hey. Uh, I'm curious about consciousness. Uh, You suggest, just from what I've heard here, that um, when engaged in transcendental meditation, one goes through layers of the mind and achieves uh, uh, unity at the bottom. Uh, I'm curious as to know what impure consciousness is. It it sounds like we're going from uh, a, a world of diversity with difference down to a world of no difference. We're, we're exactly. All the same. But what? Okay. <clears throat> okay, I, I find that problematic for one reason is that the world is full of difference, and that's not necessarily bad. I mean, no, it's so beautiful. There's but, diversity and unity. The, the it's it's um, in the human being. If if you raise up this you know consciousness expanded you appreciate diversity much more they say the world is as we are you start you know unfolding more and more of that and the world looks better and better and better the enjoyment of doing increases increases you appreciate people way more you appreciate those things i guess i just don't understand what's being gotten away from nothing's being gotten away from well, Wait, I'll tell you what's what's impure. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you there is something that's gotten away from. When you enliven this consciousness, it's like ramping up a light, and negative things start to recede. That's what's getting away from. Negativity, they say, is just like darkness. So you look and you see what darkness is, and you realize darkness isn't really anything. It's the absence of something. And you turn on the light, and it goes. But sunlight doesn't remove negativity, but this light of consciousness removes it like sunlight removes darkness. 
And those things start to recede, little by little by little. When I started meditating, two weeks after I started, I'd had this anger before I started meditation. Two weeks later, my wife comes to me and says, what's going on? Because I took out this anger on her. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, this anger, where did it go? And it, it lifted. I had anxieties and fears. And those things start lifting. Like this, um, as I said, uh, suffocating rubber clown suit starts <laughs> dissolving. This <laughs> clown suit of negativity that keeps us from this freedom. It's a thing. Now, this is my experience. And... Um, for me, um, that feeling of these things lifting um, made filmmaking way easier. This business has so much pressure in it, it isn't funny. And that pressure, with this inner happiness, inner you know, strength, inner energy coming up, it's like a protection. It's, it's, it's almost that life becomes more and more like a game. It's very beautiful. Can I try one more? Sure thing. It sounds like you're uh, selfish. It sounds like it's all about getting down to the individual and it doesn't matter what the, what the rest of the world is going no. through. No. Um, it's opposite of selfish because we're like light bulbs. And you go into a room where a couple's just had a violent argument, you can feel that. You can feel that it's not pleasant. You go into a room where someone just finished meditating and it's a beautiful feeling. And since we're like light bulbs, the more of this we have, the more we enjoy internally, but we affect our environment. And that's the key to individual you know, enlightenment and the key to world peace. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Lynch. It's Good an honor to speak with you. Um, this is, again, another two-part question. Um, Let's give it back background. I'm a student filmmaker. I love your work, obviously. Um, my question is um, your style of abstract filmmaking. And uh, the first question is, um, because since it's abstract, it should be all over the place. It, it goes all around. And um, my question is how you are able to, or how one should be able to get all abstract ideas and be able to conjure them into one somewhat coherent state of storytelling. And the second question connects it in terms of uh, being able to converse and being able to convey uh, your abstract thought to your crew or to your comrades in the process of the filmmaking without them scratching their heads and going, what the hell you're talking about? <laughs> gotcha. Um, you love ideas. Ideas are the thing that drives the boat. The idea tells you everything. And, but we fall in love with certain ideas. So I fall in love with an idea for a film because I, like, I love the way I think cinema could do it. And I like a, a story, but I like a story that holds abstractions. And, and cinema is like a language. You can tell things in a certain way that words can't unless you're a very gifted poet, say. So abstractions, cinema can tell those things. And what they are, in a way, is this beautiful, you know, uh, togetherness of sound and picture moving through time in a certain way. And, and cinema is just a beautiful thing, how it does that, how it can do that. But it can't be all abstract, but some stories can hold some of those things. 
and how you talk, you can say many things, um, sometimes strange and stupid words, and little by little, just by moving your hand or saying something, <laughs> the person says, ah, 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 okay, and then um, a prop man will bring a bunch of props, and they're totally wrong, but you say a few things, and they say, oh, okay, and they come back, and now they're, they're much closer, they're, and... <laughs> Then you say a few more words, and they go back, and now they're bringing the perfect things. It's, it's a matter of talking and, and action and reaction, and the same way with rehearsals. You start a rehearsal wherever it is, and it might be a million miles away, but you talk and then rehearse and talk and rehearse and talk and rehearse, and it comes. So we're all going down the same track based on the original ideas. Thank you, Mr. Lechen. It was an honor. Thank you very much. Hello, Mr. Lynch. Thanks Hello. for coming. My name is Brendan. I have two quick questions. Um, first one is I noticed on the program pamphlet tonight that the Dune wasn't mentioned on your credits. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a typo uh, or if it's because there was, there was other source material, there was a novel there, and I, I think everything else you may have written yourself. Um, I always uh, say that Dune is my least favorite film, but maybe I've been... <laughs> yeah. Too hard on it. Well, I was actually going to say that's actually uh, Dune is one of my favorites, and there's some of the most striking images in that. Um, but I wondered how that process worked because it, there was a source material of a novel, and uh, as in in opposition to or as opposed to when you write it from you're the writer director, you're the auteur from the from the get go. When you um, get something that's written. Though that's a thing where all the ideas have already been organized up to that writing stage. But when you read it, you see it and, and hear it and, and feel it um, just like it would be if you got an idea. You see what I mean? Yeah. So you just remember all those things that you felt and, and saw and sh- try to stay true to those things. And the thing that, that even though I... I it's my least favorite film. It's for a reason it's my least favorite because I didn't have final cut on that and that's a lesson to all of you in the film business. Um, it's, it's totally absurd for the filmmaker not to be able to make the film the way they want to make it. But in this business, um, and I knew I was, I was getting into trouble, I'd, I was hoping it would work out and it, and it didn't. So the final result is not what I wanted and that's a sadness. Okay. Another one quick question is, uh, growing up in Missoula, Montana, what, um, what were some of the first film, uh, just some of the most first inspirational images or films you remember seeing? I never saw any films, really, when I was when growing up. To you. And I didn't live in Missoula, Montana, except for two months. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, but I grew up in the Northwest, uh-huh. and um, I didn't see a lot of films, and I didn't hear the word meditation too often. Right. <laughs> All right, thanks. Nor consciousness, <coughs> nor bliss. But I had a lot of bliss. Good evening, Mr. Much. Um, Good evening. Um, I too am a student filmmaker. What led you to directing, and also what advice do you have for us, like future filmmakers? Of I wanted to be a painter, and I wanted to live the art life. <laughs> so. Um, I was uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in a, in a big room, a big studio in the, in the school, but it was all divided up into small little sections, and I was in my little section working on a painting that was a garden at night. So it was a lot of black with these green plants kind of coming out of the darkness. 
and all of a sudden these plants started to move and I heard a wind and I wasn't taking drugs (laughs) (laughs) and I thought how interesting this is this idea this painting is moving and I'm hearing sounds and I thought it would be interesting to make a moving painting and there's a uh, there was a contest experimental painting and sculpture contest at the end of each year so I made this film uh, that turned out to be called Six Men Getting Sick Um, and that was my first film and and then people got interested in that and I just kept getting green lights and little by little not so little by little but quite a bit by quite a bit I fell in love with that medium and my advice is stay true to yourself and let your voice ring out don't let anybody fiddle with it never turn down a good idea but never take a bad idea and then not to push transcendental meditation but for me, this word transcending is very important to experience that self, that pure consciousness. It's really helped me. I, I'm telling you, it really helps the filmmaker. So start diving within, enlivening that bliss consciousness, grow in happiness, intuition, and the joy of doing is so beautiful. And you'll glow in this peaceful way. Your friends will be very, very happy with you. And everyone (laughs) will want to sit next to you. (laughs) And people will give you money. (laughs) Thank you. Hi, David. I'm Brad. Thank you very much for coming. How are you doing, Brad? Oh, great. Thank you. Um, the question I had was when you were starting out in your career and you were making movie Eraserhead, which from what I remember I think took around maybe five years to make, and you weren't making money, but you knew that you were very committed to having ideas and producing them in one medium or another, um, you must have had doubts along the line of to where you could ever have a career or make a living doing this. What, what did you have to do mentally to kind of prepare for the fact that you were committed to making ideas happen, but not quite sure that you were ever going to be able to make, you know, ends meet doing it. I understand. Um, one night, uh, my younger brother and my father set me down in a kind of a dark living room, and my brother's very responsible, and my father's very responsible. And they had a little chat with me. (laughs) But it almost broke my heart. um, Because that chat was I should get a job and forget Eraserhead. And I had a little girl and um, I should be responsible and get a job. And I couldn't do that. And I was very, very lucky. I was really lucky. And, you know, I think that... I, and it sounds um, I, there's there's things like this that happen in life, and so it's money in the bank to dive within and get that happiness coming from inside. Because the truth they have this phrase that got me meditating was true happiness doesn't lie out there; true happiness lies within, and that starts growing, and you really feel it. 
And I did get a job. I delivered the Wall Street Journal, and I made $50 a week, and I'd save up enough uh, to shoot a scene and, you know, and finish the, the thing and started meditating. And, you know, it all worked out. There's no guarantee that meditation or delivering the Wall Street Journal is going to make you a success. <laughs> but meditation, the events of your life may stay the same, but how do you go through those events? And you can count on that inner, inner happiness, uh, but you can't always count on, on that out there. Thank you very much, David. And that's a strength. It's unbelievable strength that comes from within, within, within. Powerful, powerful thing. Many names for it, but it, it, it works. Thank you once again. Thank you, pal. Hi, Mr. Lynch. Thank you for taking my question. My name is Piers. Um, the Dune question was already taken, so I'm going to have to go to a more esoteric one. I, uh, maybe two years ago, uh, was introduced to a form of Tai Chi, uh, which was called Tai Chi Chur, and I, I took on the process with an open heart. And what I discovered was that after meditating for periods of weeks, off and on months, I noticed an incredible amount of negativity come out in me. In fact, I noticed events in my life becoming more chaotic. And I'm wondering, what is this stuff that you start to access? And in a way, I don't really do much of this Tai Chi Chur anymore, because although it sounds kind of crazy, the, 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 the lows that I would hit, each time I would do it, I'd feel good. And then I'd go into such a low point for months, months and months of, of lowness. And it was now it's almost like I don't want to even go back to it because I'm tired of recycling that energy. Is there a quicker way or I don't, do you okay. ever come in contact with so, that? <laughs> picture yourself as the Empire State Building and you got hundreds of rooms and in those rooms there's a lot of junk and you put all that junk there. Now, you take this elevator, which is going to be the dive within, and you go beyond the building. You go to the unified field beneath the building, pure consciousness. And it's like, let's say, electric gold. And you experience that. And that electric gold activates these little cleaning robots. <laughs> And they start going and they start cleaning the rooms. <laughs> and they put the gold in where the dirt, dirt was, the junk was, the garbage. Now, once in a while, you take the elevator down and you really, really activate a lot of electric gold. And you rev up those cleaning robots. And they make a dust storm. And that affects activity, your life. But less dirt is there, but it's created a dust storm. And then the teacher would tell you, instead of meditating 20 minutes, cut that down to 5 or 10. And go through that dust storm. It will end. Clouds come and clouds go. And it's all your dirt. <laughs> and it's going to go. It's going to go. You're cleaning and infusing simultaneously. When you when the mind when the awareness trans, transcends and experiences this fundamental deepest level, 
They say the physiology settles down to a state three times deeper than deep sleep. These stresses can unwind. That were in there like barbed wire, coils of stress barbed wire. They evaporate. They come out because of that deep rest. So you're cleaning and infusing. And it goes like that. And then pretty soon, you're full of that gold. You're there. That's, that's, that's a beautiful state of enlightenment. That's wonderful. Just one more question. You were talking about how you didn't like Dune so much. That's one of my most profound books I've read. Have you ever considered possibly... I like the book fine. I didn't like yeah. the film. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever consider doing uh, the, the, the next book in the series? Or? No, no. I don't want to go back there. Um, okay. it's a, it's, I got to live in Mexico City for a year and a half, and I found that city to be magical and maybe the most romantic city in the world. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for taking my question. You bet. Hello, hello, Mr. Lynch. Uh, hello. My name's Ellie. I'm a student at UC Irvine. And uh, first of all, I do want to thank you very much for coming down here. Um, really, what a cool way to spend a Saturday night for us Southern Californian kids. Um, it's very good to be here, you guys. All right. My question concerns the new project, uh, Inland Empire, which um, is a great name, and us Niner Niners just love it. Um, I did hear that there was, um, I, I, I hear that you switched from film to digital technology. I just want to know what influenced um, that switch and how that's, um, is that going to be a change for the future? Yeah, I fell in love with digital video, making short experiments for my website. And I, I, after a few of these, I'm starting to look at this camera, starting to notice that it's 40 minutes of, of film tape in there. There's automatic focus, automatic exposure. They're small. They're lightweight. And, I, and, I, and that stuff is cheap. <laughs> it's freedom for me and freedom for all of you. You know, film and that equipment is very expensive, and it's heavy, and it takes a big crew. And those cameras and that way are starting to look like dinosaurs to me. And it's just going to go that way. Digital's here, the video iPod's here. We just got to get real and uh, roll with the flow. That's good enough. Thank you. I have the very good fortune of traveling uh, with a great soul and a great scientist, quantum physicist, Dr. John Hagelin. I'm going to take one more question, and then I'd like you to hear from, from him. Hey, man. How are you doing? Good. Thanks, good. man. Um, I got one big question all kind of meddled in there. I don't know how, quite how to say it, but um, I'll, I'll try and get it out there. Um, Insofar as the physical act of going to the movies can mimic or mirror uh, falling asleep and participating in a dream, that your cast of characters, your protagonist is you, that you're participating but not in control, you know, um, that you're affected by it and not at the same time. Um, do you believe that there's something inherent in the ritual of? sitting down in a darkened theater and looking at dancing lights up on the screen, that can be um, 
that can evoke or inspire a meditative experience? And if so, how? And if um, abstract images um, play into that, or if you believe that that's possible? And, and then the and then the second part, <laughs> the second part of that. Let me get that one first. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> it's so magical, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, to go into a theater and have the lights go down, mm-hmm. it gets very quiet, yeah. and then the curtains start to open. Maybe they're red, <laughs> and you go into a world. You go into a world, and it's. It's beautiful when it's a shared experience, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful when you're at home and you're, you know, theater in front of, you know, it's not so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good on a big screen that's the best. To go into a world, to go into a world, mm-hmm. so beautiful. And I think it would be possible um, to transcend, if you, if you heard and saw the correct things, mm-hmm. it, it could be. Now, the thing is that transcending is not foreign to us as human beings. The thing about meditation, it's, it's, it's a specific technique that guarantees transcending the, during that time. But transcending, you, you, we've all, you know, just between sleep and, and, you know, between waking and sleeping, they say there's a gap. You can, you can transcend and feel bliss or see, you know, light and, and feel that bliss. We've all had that experience. And I, so I say that there's, there's, there could be something like this happening um, in, in, in cinema if it was known how to do it. I don't know how to do it. Um, well, I think you do. Well, bless your heart. Bless your heart. Okay. Uh, now, uh, Bobby Roth uh, will introduce Dr. John Hagelin. I'll be back. David, can I ask you one quick yes or no sure, question? Sure, sure. Sorry. Yeah. Could you read my script? <laughs> I can read your script. <laughs> we'll, we'll have a discussion about this right after. After? Yeah. Okay, thank okay. you. David will be back to take more questions. David has asked two of the world's foremost, really, scientists, a physicist and a brain researcher, to comment on this age-old quest to dive within, this understanding of meditation being integral to somehow knowing thyself, knowing oneself. And I know of no other scientist who has a deeper understanding of the modern scientific perspective of this field of unity that lies within each person, each of us. Dr. John Hagelin is a renowned quantum physicist, educator, author, and public policy expert. He has conducted pioneering research at CERN the European Center for Particle Physics, and SLAC, the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, and is responsible for the development of a highly successful grand unified field theory based on the superstring 
his scientific contributions in the fields of electroweak unification, grand unification, supersymmetry, and cosmology included some of the most cited references in the physical sciences. In recognition of these achievements, Dr. Hagelin was named winner of the prestigious Kilby Award, which recognizes scientists who have made, quote, major contributions to society through their applied research in the fields of science and technology. The award recognized Dr. Hagelin as a scientist in the tradition of Einstein, Jeans, Bohr, and Eddington. Dr. Hagelin received his PhD from Harvard University. He is currently director of the Institute of Science, Technology, and Public Policy and professor of physics at Maharshi University of Management. Dr. Hagelin is now working in Washington, D.C. to establish a much-needed, long-overdue University of World Peace. Would you please welcome Dr. John Hagelin. Wonderful to be here. I'm not normally shy of public speaking, but David Lynch is a very hard act to follow in many ways. He's got this million dollar coiffure, <laughs> makes some of us feel follically challenged. And he speaks in such a poetic and lucid way, such a compelling way, about an experience that is so abstract that traditionally it's considered to be impossible to even describe. But I did want to share with you a little bit of the modern scientific perspective and brain scientific perspective on what this experience is. Is this fundamental unity of life open to direct experience at the source of thought? Is it fact or fiction? It is perhaps the core understanding of all the major traditions of knowledge and spiritual traditions throughout time and throughout the world. And it is now also a scientific reality, the fundamental truth of the unity of life. And this goes to a question that was brought up at the very beginning. What happens in meditation? Are we running away from diversity to embrace unity or something? The universe is both. The conclusion of 300 years of scientific research can really be put in a single phrase. The universe is superficially diverse, fundamentally unified. The universe is superficially complex, but fundamentally simple. The whole quest of modern science for the past quarter century especially has been to explore deeper layers of the onion of existence from surface diversity to the world of molecules and atoms and nuclei and quarks and leptons and electroweak unification and grand unification and super unification based on the superstring in the process of diving deep within the reality of our physical universe surface diversity gives way to fundamental unity the nobel prize was given for the first stroke of unification back in 74, where two of the four forces of nature, superficially distinct radioactivity and light, were ultimately found to be one. At a deeper level, 100 times smaller than the atomic nucleus, 
And that began the whole modern quest to fulfill Einstein's dream, to discover the single unified fountainhead of all the diversity in the universe. So grand unified theories of the strong, weak, and electromagnetic forces were derived, and recently, since the superstring revolution, super unified field theories in which all the forces, including gravity, are one. And not just the forces, the so-called particles on which they act, the quarks and leptons, that means all matter, all energy, united at their source. All particles, all forces are just now understood to be little ripples on the surface of an ocean of existence. And the whole universe, which we used to think of composed as composed of particles and forces, is now just a symphony, just the different resonant frequencies, the vibrations of this fundamental ocean of unity. Now this is very creditable development of modern science, but this understanding of unity, deep experience of unity, is not reserved to a handful of mathematical physicists. This experience of unity, comprehension of unity, is perhaps the most cherished experience throughout the long history of human civilization. It really, in a sense, forms the core of really every major spiritual tradition in the world. Meditation is a long, cherished carefully developed tradition of knowledge, a technique or series of techniques to turn human awareness powerfully within, to experience deeper levels of mind, deeper levels of human consciousness, and that inward march of the mind does culminate with the experience of this field of unity at the source of thought, this unified universal field at the basis of mind and matter. And there's another way, I think, to understand it a little more concretely, which will be help us understand the brain research, which we're going to show you live in a few moments. A very brave student is going to come up here. Let us take a look under the hood and see what's happening in their brain during the meditative process when the awareness goes within and transcends thought. A very rapid and total transformation in the style of functioning of the human brain. Here's how the process of meditation works. In waking consciousness, where we live much of our lives, awareness is always of something. From the moment the alarm clock goes off in the morning to the realization that we're late for class, one experience of a concrete nature, one object followed by another until we collapse to sleep at night. So in waking consciousness, our comprehension or awareness is always localized on some object of experience or another. The process of meditation is simply allowing the attention to systematically relax from that sharp focus of attention and thereby expand and expand to comprehend bigger and bigger wholenesses. And the awareness continues to withdraw from sensory perception and expand and expand until it becomes literally unbounded, universal abstract, comprehending the totality of existence in a single abstract wholeness of experience. That experience, it turns out, has become the subject of intense scientific research over the past 20 years and constitutes a fourth major state of consciousness, distinct from wake, waking, dreaming, or sleep. 
It has its own subjective reality, obviously, but it has its own objective reality, a striking physiological reality. And that reality, I think most importantly, and in a nutshell, can be described as global EEG coherence. EEG means the electrical activity of the brain, the encephalogram. Normally, the activity of the brain is measured electrically with a series of electrodes placed in different places on the scalp, measuring the activity of the brain in different areas of the mind and personality. I don't know how many of you have had a chance ever to see your own EEG, but it's depressing. (laughs) There's no obvious intelligence in there. There's no communication, no coordination, no integration of the activity of this incredibly scattered brain. And it is mathematically very much like a conductor, like an orchestra without a conductor. Before the conductor shows up, the musicians are sawing away at their instruments, warming up, with no real attempt to coordinate their activity. And what you get is a cacophony of discordant sound. And then the conductor steps up to the podium and raises the baton, and in an instant, that cacophony of discordant sound is transformed into flowing music. So, like that, the brain, with its incredibly scattered activity and very little communication between the left hemisphere, right hemisphere, frontal and occipital lobes, and so forth, the whole brain suddenly comes into concert. And that profoundly integrated, balanced functioning of the brain is a vitally important educational discovery. Because orderly brain functioning correlates with rising IQ, increased intelligence, improved learning ability, short-term and long-term recall, increased creativity, improved moral reasoning, Increased psychological stability, emotional maturity, alertness, reaction time. Everything good about the brain depends on its orderly functioning. And now orderliness of brain functioning can be systematically developed in any student of any age with increasing IQ, creativity, success in every area of life. This is so important to an educator like myself, and I think to students too, because it renders obsolete what has been an extremely bleak understanding of human potential. The previous sort of paradigm has been we peak at 16 years of age. After the age of 16, where we reach our maximum gray matter weight and maximum raw intelligence, we all experience an inexorable, slow, but torturous decline in our intelligence with a shrinking of our gray matter that starts in the 20s and starts to shrink precipitously by the 30s. Now, when you get to be 51, we like to say, well, you know, we make up for this loss of raw intelligence through our wisdom, maturity, experience. But the whole thing is just pathetic. It's a bleak view of human potential. The human brain, as we'll see in a moment, is so plastic, so malleable, so capable of forging new connections and developing in intelligence throughout life. Yes, if you don't use it, it does atrophy. And we'll see striking pictures of atrophying brains in certain university students. But the whole thing is completely preventable, and the brain is designed, it's really engineered, hardwired, to grow in integrated strength and intelligence and happiness throughout life. And we'll see that in a moment. Now, 
This is, for another reason, I think crucial in education, because right now in education, we develop small aspects of the brain. If we're studying physics, a little part over here, mathematics right here, literature here, art over here, music. But the rest of the brain is essentially left kind of undeveloped, and we become very lopsided. By the master's level, we start to realize we're learning more and more about less and less. <laughs> By the doctoral level, we become the world's greatest experts in nothing. <laughs> My doctoral thesis was called Weak Mass Mixing, CP Violation in the Decay of B-Corp Mesons. How many have read it? <laughs> Almost everybody. <laughs> Specialization isn't the evil. The evil is failure to take a few minutes regularly with a little guidance to withdraw that extremely narrowly focused comprehension and narrow-minded nationalism, narrowness of thinking, short-sighted, self-centered behavior, withdraw that sharply confined focus of attention to expand and expand and experience greater wholeness, greater integration, greater bliss, greater balance, and ultimately experience the true nature of our own self, which is huge, global, cosmic. And in that sense, force an expansion through the meditative process, force an expansion of comprehension so that we become more global citizens with global comprehension. Yeah, with the ability to fulfill our own aspirations with greater efficiency, greater satisfaction, but at the same time, in that expanded comprehension, support the interests of society as a whole. This experience of life is called, when it's developed, enlightenment or self-realization, realization of the true nature of oneself. And it's pretty easy to understand what that means. I mean, what is the self, ultimately? What is it actually? The self is really not this body, which changes continuously, for the worse. It's... <laughs> The self ultimately is the experiencer, our own subjectivity, that which sees, the only thing in our lives that has never changed. Everything else changes. Our bodies, our beliefs change, our friends change, our jobs change, our spouses change. <laughs> and yet we know we're the same person on some level. Can't put our finger on it, but we know we're the same person we were as a child. That thing that hasn't changed is our own consciousness, and its nature is absolute contentment, pure bliss. So experiencing that, for a few minutes, we're not really escaping diversity for the sake of unity. Yeah, for 20 minutes perhaps we are, but the purpose of it is not to permanently run away from diversity in the world, but to experience the unified source of diversity, the level of you, and of me, and of you, where we are all one. To experience the scientific truth of the unity of life and live that unity in our behavior, in the way we act towards other people. So it's called liberation, it's called freedom from bondage, because before that experience of the true nature of consciousness, the nature of ourself, before that becomes permanent, before we're really grounded in the reality of who we are, we don't have that experience. And the self, even though it's always there, or we wouldn't experience anything, 
But the self is, practically speaking, hidden from view. And what remains is this. Now, if you're eating mashed potatoes and you like mashed potatoes, that's okay. Because the potatoes are, they have some charm. But that's all there is at that moment in your life. And that is at the expense of unbounded, universal bliss. If you're eating pickled eggplant or okra, life is a tragedy at that moment. (laughs) Because that's all there is to life at that moment. That's called bondage. And enlightenment is not that kind of bondage. Liberation is simply self-realization, where even in the midst of the experience of potato or okra, good or bad, we are never lost to the true nature, the unboundedness of bliss within. And as David said, that brings great strength of invincibility. When that experience has been stabilized, it doesn't matter whether you're sound asleep, engaged in dreaming, dynamically active in a a tennis match or an exam, even under anesthesia, you are never lost to this experience of inner eternity, unboundedness, the true cosmic nature of ourself. The experience of the unified field, the source of universes, which is our own being. I want to introduce a very wonderful scientist and a very brave volunteer who are going to just show you for a few moments what happens in the brain, which is really quite striking from the standpoint of a brain researcher. This is amazing stuff. From the standpoint of the rest of us, it's pretty interesting. The transformation in the brain that happens when human awareness expands to become unbounded or very localized activity in the brain expands to encompass the totality of the brain with with a reintegrating ability to develop the brain fully in a completely balanced way. Dr. Fred Travis is a top researcher in the area of meditation and brain development, highly published, one of the leaders in the world in this field, and Shane Ziskman is a student who's wearing a ridiculous cap <laughs> which will allow us to actually see what is taking place in this brain. Please welcome. together here. (laughs) If I only had a brain. (laughs) Good evening. Now what we'll be doing is anchoring this very abstract concept of a universal field of intelligence, of bliss, underlying all of life. We'll be anchoring that in the concrete functioning of the brain. The reason we're able to do that is brain functioning shapes the content of daily experience. You wake up refreshed. There's no problem too big for you that day. But the next day, if you wake up tired, it's a chore just to remember what day it is. (laughs) 
And this process goes in reverse as well. Not only does brain functioning shape experience, but each experience shapes the brain. Each experience changes the brain. Right now you're seeing me, you're hearing these words. What it's doing is creating a cascade of electrical activity that's running forward and backward, side and side. What's happening is hundreds of thousands of neurons are as if shaking hands. They're creating a delicate network which temporarily allows you to have this experience. Now what happens is every time you have the experience over and over, this delicate network gets stronger and stronger. What you're doing is creating networks that are giving you your sense of reality in the world. I want to show you growth of brain networks in a monkey. Here's a monkey's hand that just brushed his fingertips with a brush, which is a very benign experiment. And what we see here is how the brain responded when the two fingertips were touched. There's a certain area of the brain which was activated. After three months of stimulation, now notice how much of the brain is being activated every time the monkey's fingers are being touched. Do you see this? It's much greater. This is what you're doing with every experience. Have you ever tried to read the Braille in the elevators? <laughs> it's the kind of thing I like to do. <laughs> and it's really difficult. Someone who is blind, all of that matter that used to process vision is now processing information through the fingers. They're getting much deeper information from their fingers than we are. This is what we're doing. By what we put our attention on, we're actually structuring our brain to determine our reality. Now, the caution here is all experiences change the brain. High stress fatigue. It also leads to very specific brain circuits. Unfortunately, these give you the sense that life is full of problems. What happens under high stress and fatigue is the back part of the brain is very active. This is a sensory area. This is a screen of your mind. All of my words, all of these pictures, all of the people you're seeing up here are creating these pictures in the back of your mind and one is just overlapping the other. This back part of the area can talk with the motor system. You can see the world. You can respond to the world. But you do it in very much of a stimulus response type mode. When you wake up, you look at the clock, you notice you're late for class, you jump up, your heart is pumping, you're breathing fast, you run the class, you sit down, and you forgot your homework. <laughs> or you stay up all night studying. <laughs> you stay up all night studying. You get to the exam, and you fall asleep. What is happening is under stress is you're not using this frontal executive system. This is as if the CEO of the brain chief executive, executive officer. This is the David Lynch of your brain. <laughs> this part of the brain is taking all possible inputs and creating one very beautiful output. Under high stress, under high fatigue, you actually create circuits that ignore this part of your brain, such that in this slide we're actually seeing functional lesions. These are two people laying down. We're looking at brain metabolic rate. How active is the brain? We're looking at the very bottom part of the brain. This is the front. This is the back. This is a normal brain. This is everyone in the hallway, in the hall. This is not a student brain here. <laughs> this is actually a violent criminal. And what we see here are called functional lesions. They're not actually holes in the brain, but just that these parts of the brain are not functioning. They're not part of your daily thinking, your daily planning. And so that means 
that what the functions that these parts of the brain subserve are not there. Now, high stress, a very fast-paced activity, the demands made upon you, you're moving in this direction. You're making circuits which are creating a world which is a stimulus response mode, and you need something to activate the frontal circuits. And what we're talking about today, this process of transcending, exercises frontal circuits, exercises frontal connections. It's almost like going to the gym and lifting weights. You build up a specific part of your musculature. You sit down, you transcend. It's beginning to strengthen a specific part of your brain. When you come out of meditation, that part of the brain is now ready for use. Okay? Let's stop talking and start looking. We have a live demonstration now. I'd like to uh, introduce Shane Zisman. Let's give him a hand. What we see here is a blue cap, a stretch cap. Um, on that are wires which are picking up the electrical activity of his brain underneath. It's coming through our portable amplifiers here. It's coming into the computer. Uh, what we see here is this is the front of the brain. Here, could you blink a few times, Shane? Once, twice, thrice. Good. What we're seeing here is the activity of the eyes. It's actually not the brain. The eyes on the outside, and they're being picked up. Now, also, what we're not seeing is its brain isn't really in technicolor. <laughs> um, that's just to let you see the, the brain here. Okay, what we'll do is we'll select some um, first one sensor in the front, and we'll see what the brain is doing when 900 people are watching you. <laughs> and that's what we have here. This is a second between each of these columns. There's um, eight seconds on the screen. This very fast activity is what the brain is doing to take all the shapes and the colors and the movement and putting it into what he sees. Uh, we're going to put another um, sensor on the screen here. This is going to be the back part of the brain. So here we have the front part. Here we have the back part. Here's some eye blinks here. Overall, notice how these are not working together. This is what the front part is doing. The waves are not going up and down at the same time. The electrical activity, you can see here in the back, there's some resting beginning. Here the front is still very active. This is what the brain does during eyes open. Uh, let's see what's happening during eyes closed. You can close your eyes, Shane. Notice what's beginning to happen back here. Notice this rhythmical activity going up and down. This is called alpha activity. You may have heard that term. Alpha activity is resting rhythm of your cortex. This back part of the brain is part of the visual system. When your eyes are open right now, all this stuff is streaming to the back part of your brain and it's working as hard as it can. You close the eyes, suddenly you stop all of this activation to the back part of your brain, but you're still awake, you're still alert. This is what this brain signature means, restful alertness. It's actually the, the brain is just humming to itself. With eyes closed, the front part of the brain is still working quite hard. It's thinking, it's evaluating. Shane's wondering what time he's going to get home. Will he have dessert? All of these things are going through his mind. So now what you can do is open your eyes, Shane. So here we'll start with eyes open again. And now notice we'll have him close his eyes. He'll begin transcendental meditation practice. And 
When he does that, look specifically in the front. You're going to see this resting rhythm of the cortex in the front. It's a little tiny change in the wave pattern, but it's quite remarkable. The neuroscientists here seldom see frontal alpha coherence during um, eyes closed awake. So you can close your eyes, begin to yamshin. Did you see that? This is where he closed his eyes, noticing what's happened immediately, what came up here. And if you follow the rising and falling of this wave, the rising and falling of this wave, you can see that they're tracking. It's called phase synchrony or coherence. We only have two leads here, but this is actually happening all over the scalp. This is the idea of global brain function. We'll watch for a little bit longer. There's a, it's a bursting that's going on here. TM is a very dynamic activity. I mean, just look at this, these four seconds here. And look at the similarity in the wave here in the front, here in the back. And then it goes away. Some thought comes in again, this process of transcending. And this is what happens when you meditate front stage with 700 people looking at you. <laughs> Uh, we usually don't meditate this way. It's usually in quiet and silent. And so this level of frontal coherence is very strong. And after that 20-minute meditation, what you've done is you've given your body, your brain, a whole new experience, a whole new set of experience. And then you come out into waking, and the brain naturally begins to integrate it with daily activity. Great, so you can stop meditating now, Shane. You'll notice the alpha activity has disappeared here. Then as his eyes open, his eyes are still closed there. His eyes open or disappear there. Thank you very much. So that's what the experience you can give your brain. And with repeated experience, that level of coherence becomes more and more seen during activity. This is what the research is showing. So what will your brain be like when you graduate? Well, it's going to be the sum of everything that you've done. We've actually devised a brain integration report card that we use at Marisha University of Management. And it tells you the impact of your whole college experience. Not only the classes, but the relationships, the, the, the deep insights that you've had. It's a measure of frontal functioning that helps, that correlates with your value that you've gained through the academic studies. And I'd like to leave you with one thought. We turn back to the Wizard of Oz motif. So here we have the wizard. It's the end of the movie. And there's the scarecrow. Notice how happy he is. Do you remember what the scarecrow wanted? A brain. He wanted a brain. And he braved all of these dangers because he wanted a brain. So here he's seeing the Wizard of Oz. And what is the Wizard of Oz giving him? A diploma, a piece of paper. 
what my advice is to you is don't be content with just getting a piece of paper in college. Thank you very much, Fred and Shane. I'm going to reintroduce David in just a moment, but in case that went by rather fast, which it probably did for the non-neuroscientists in the room, that was a very extraordinary transformation in brain functioning, something that you see, for example, in 20 years Zen meditators, you see a more of that global EEG coherence, but not quite even to that degree of strength. Usually it takes a mathematical analysis to kind of enhance the signal relative to the noise and see that something really has happened in the brain. But even on the level of raw data, unfiltered data, which we just saw, a dramatic transformation in the integrated functioning of the brain. Now, by the way, if you have young people with ADHD, for example, and all the stress-related learning disorders, which have become an epidemic in our society, plus the drugs to treat them, which may have worse side effects than the conditions themselves, this is an approach that in a very short period of time restores balance in brain functioning and even we saw that picture of a violent offender in Folsom prison with the functional lesions but the whole front of the brain essentially had shut down within maybe three to six to nine months those functional lesions fill in because the transcending process engages the total brain and regular experience of that enlivens, develops the brain holistically. I've got to tell one quick story because it's quite remarkable. There's a French-speaking country, Senegal in Africa, and they were having a pretty severe criminal justice crisis with severe prison overcrowding and almost daily riots. The rate of return to prison in Senegal, the recidivism rate, was about 90%, which is high even by U.S. standards. So I guess out of desperation, the Minister of Justice decided they would teach on a voluntary basis transcendental meditation in the prisons. And within a very short period of time, everyone started, including all the prison guards, because it brought relief in those pressure cookers of stress. Well, within 14 weeks, the rate of return to prison had dropped from 90% to 6%. And within about... another four or five months, a third of the prisons had closed. There's this incredible videotape of the Minister of Justice speaking on national television with the president seated nearby, and he's crying on national television how this simple intervention of transcendental meditation and the meditative experience completely transformed criminal justice in this country and transformed the whole country. David Lynch has established a really precious foundation and is using his precious time in this way to try to bring the experience of meditation to as many students, young and old, elementary school, junior high school, high school, college, graduate school, as many students in the U.S. as possible. And he has an ulterior motive, and the motive is world peace. What David is trying to do is take advantage of some of the most remarkable research 
I talked about this in What the Bleep a little bit. Some of the most remarkable research I think that's been done in this generation, and that research is on the spillover effect, spillover effect of meditation. We have an inevitable effect on our families, loved ones, friends, communities, college campuses. And if we're feeling profound inner peace, that is infectious. So David's idea, and it's not a golf ball size idea, it's a David Lynch size idea, is why not create enough experience of inner peace and radiating inner peace to really palpably transform society. And we're starting with this, we're going all over the country, but the initial emphasis was in Washington. We've recently traveled on the East Coast. 500 students are learning Transcendental Meditation, mostly with the help of the David Lynch Foundation, for credit in the context of a university-sponsored research project on student health, student happiness, student performance, student brain development. But the idea starting in Washington, D.C. is to bring some sanity and peace to that stress-ridden city. And I don't know whether we're able to get... Yeah. I don't know whether we will ever get George W. Bush to meditate, (laughs) but we can surround him with meditators and put the Congress in an environment where more life-supporting policies will be coming out of the country. In that atmosphere, which is a partisan strife (coughs) and fear, that's the sort of policies you get when it comes to environment, global warming, weapons proliferation, war and peace in the world. So let us create an influence of peace, and that's why we're forming in Washington, at a very rapid pace of unfoldment, I'm very happy to say, a university of peace to counterbalance the global proliferation of military academies and graduate war colleges, all dedicated to advancing the science of war. Let's have one university. We're going to create one university dedicated solely to the prevention of war, to the promotion of peace, to creating a new profession in the world, not a soldier, but a professional peacemaker, individuals with the responsibility and actual ability to prevent war and promote peace on a physical basis. When individuals collectively experience this universal field that underlies and pervades us all, you create a little bit of a ripple in that field that travels isotropically at the speed of light. Several people, a hundred people, a thousand people, simultaneously stimulating that universal field creates a tidal wave of unity and positivity and coherence in the collective consciousness and resulting in markedly reduced violence, terrorism, warfare, crime, domestic violence. Societal stress religious, political, ethnic tensions mounting in critical hotspots like the Middle East fuel violence and conflict. According to extensive published research in the world's foremost journals, you can diffuse that enmity, neutralize that stress, create unity and harmony and positivity, and markedly reduce violence, terrorism, and war. So that is the big goal of the David Lynch Foundation. I'm going to have David come up now and talk about it, but 
If you have any interest in hearing more about it, what we're doing, learning more about meditation, where to learn it, how to get a scholarship to learn it from the David Lynch Foundation, please leave us this card. And David will get back to you in a week or two and tell you about the progress, where to go to learn it, how we can support you and help you do it. That would be tremendous because we can do certainly hear what we're doing in Washington, create powerful peace for the individual and for the whole region. Please welcome back David Lynch. Be happy to ask, answer some more questions on film or whatever you'd like. Um, thank you for being here once again. And so, when you started talking about meditation, uh, to me it sounded not very different from the experience you get when you uh, use hallucinogenic drugs. So, I guess the question that I started thinking is uh, maybe it's more for the neurobiologist. So when you are meditating, what specifically in your brain, what areas are being differentially activated? And how is it different from what happens when you are on mushrooms, for example? Or, for example, if you're talking about bliss, I also started thinking about what happens when you have an orgasm. I mean, what areas of the brain are differentially being activated? So. We've got to ask our friend, Dr. Fred Travis. And I, ha I have a question this for you. This would be great. Small question. Are you ever planning on working with Kyle McLachlan again? <laughs> I, you know, Kyle's a longtime friend of mine, mm -hmm. and I love him. Um, if he marries to a part, if he's right for a part, um, absolutely. Thank you. First, they're very different. Um, what happens with uh, mushrooms, for instance, it impedes the take-up of serotonin in the synapses. And the primary effect is in the visual sensory area, which is the back. Um, and orgasm is primarily a um, strong upflow of activation from the brain stem up to the brain, so the whole brain is getting activated. TM is unique in that the frontal area and also the back part of the area are awake, are alert, more so than during eyes closed rest at your attentional system. But the subcortical areas are more quiet, more restful. It's a unique state of restful alertness. And this is seen in some pilot neural imaging that we're doing. Thank you. I thought he was going to say more. I could have said, said that myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, the music in your movies, uh, it adds a lot to the mood that, that's going on in it. And I was wondering how you get the guy who's doing... I, the guy who does the music for your movies, what's his name? Angelo Badalamente. Yeah, how do you get him on the same page as you to understand like the abstractions in your movie? That's uh, a good question. Angelo is like my, my brother now. I met him on, on Blue Velvet. And it's the same way I described earlier with um, actors. I, um, I, I love this guy, Angelo, and I like to sit next to him on the piano bench. And I talk, and Angelo plays. Oh. And he plays my words. But sometimes he doesn't understand my words, so he plays very badly. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, no, 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 Angelo. And I change my words a little bit, and he plays different. Oh. And then I say, no, 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 Angelo. 
<laughs> and then I changed my words, and somehow, somehow through this process, and it doesn't take very long, a lot longer than Shane got those lines to line up, yeah. but uh, Angelo will catch something, and I, and I say, that's it. And then Angelo starts going with his magic down the correct path. It's so beautiful, so beautiful. And this thing, I don't know why, if Angelo lived next door to me, I'd like to do this process every day. But he lives in New Jersey, and I live in Los Angeles. Okay. So it's like a lot of trial and error, and just having the connection with them. Yeah, it's, it's um, you know, it's, yes, exactly right. Okay, thank you. Hi, David. Do you know about the Department of Peace? The Permanent Peace. Department of Peace. The, the, no, uh, the Department of Peace. I think I met some people uh, tonight at, at dinner from the Department of Peace. Okay. Uh, well, in September, uh, in the House of Representatives, legislation was introduced by Dennis Kucinich to establish the Department of Peace, and a couple of weeks later, it was introduced into the U.S. Senate. And uh, so currently, there's legislation to establish a Department of Peace. There would be a Secretary of Peace. And uh, two weeks ago in London, there was a summit of uh, people from 14 countries around the world uh, to establish Departments of Peace in those countries. So uh, my question is, what do you think we can do to make the Department of Peace a reality in this country? I, I, I was just going to say... Um, this is uh, Dr. John Hagelin's domain, and, and you will, I think, really appreciate uh, this answer. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, very quickly. What it's going to take is probably a shift in Congress. It's a very democratically supported bill right. and a Republican-dominated Congress. And ultimately, probably a shift in Congress and a shift in the policies of our government, et cetera, are really going to come from the people at the grassroots level, an awakening so that people demand and deserve a better government. And that's why I'm not active quite as much politically as I once was, but we are forming, in a sense, at the grassroots level, just like this, a complementary government, an alternative government called the U.S. peace government. And the idea is... We're not going to be taxing people or legislating behavior or coercion or incarceration. We're through education and providing solutions, sustainable solutions, renewable solutions, prevention-oriented solutions, attempt to move si education, move society in a direction where they're going to demand better policies from the government. So what's it going to take? All of you, really. Um, not necessarily being politically active unless you want to, but growing in consciousness and awakening a grassroots brush fire in the field of collective consciousness so that everybody demands and deserves a better government. Hi. How are you doing? I'm fabulous, thank you. <laughs> um, I am You're looking a fabulous. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, so, <laughs> I, I had a train of thought, I swear. Um, 
I've been a practicing Buddhist for quite some time, and I'm also a student filmmaker, so I really see where you have all these connections with meditation and filmmaking. And I was wondering if this stemmed from a specific religious practice or religious tradition, or if it stemmed into a religious practice or tradition for you. Transcendental meditation, uh, like you heard, is a mental technique practiced by people from all religions. And it just allows you to dive within and have that experience of pure consciousness, bliss. And does that answer your question? Uh, I just I just meant for you personally. I mean, even no, not for just my for myself personally. I for me, I there was a time, um, like I said earlier, in the Northwest, I didn't hear about meditation, and uh, then I started hearing about it. But I thought. I thought it was a waste of time. I didn't even really want to consider it. I didn't think about it that much. I didn't, I didn't know what they were doing, and I didn't really care. And then I, I started you know, realizing this phrase that true happiness isn't out there. True happiness lies within. And we all our senses, everything is pointed out. We do find happiness, but we know we live in a world of change, and that happiness starts going away, and we look over here for more happiness. We look over here. It's always changing. True happiness lies within, but that phrase didn't tell me where the within was, nor did it tell me how to get there. And that used to really trouble me. And then I started thinking, wait a minute. Maybe meditation is that way to go within Maybe it is. And I started looking into different kinds of meditation, and I didn't know which one to pick. And my little sister calls, and she said she had started Transcendental Meditation six months earlier. And, um, and I heard a change in her voice. I heard what she told me about it. I said, that's it. That's it for me. But I still had doubts. I didn't know what this was going to be. And I went down, and I learned. And I was taken into a little quiet room to have my first meditation after having been taught how to meditate. And I sat down, closed my eyes, started this mantra, and I say it was like I was in an elevator and they snipped the cables. I went. Like, into bliss. Into bliss. So deep. It was so beautiful sort of familiar but unique and I say the word unique should be saved for that experience it was so beautiful and, and, and finally the teacher came and she brought me out of meditation I was told it was going to be 20 minutes I said are you kidding me that's 20 she would shh because <laughs> other people were, were meditating and um, so it was beautiful and I've been doing it for 32 years every day since and I've noticed things get better and better. And the gentleman that asked about selfishness, I, I, I feel bad because it, in a way, it is selfish. It's the self. It's, it's for yourself, to know yourself. There's a phrase, know thyself. This is the self. It's us. It's so beautiful. It's not against anything. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, 
Hi, my name is uh, Errol Silverstein, and um, I had a question um, or uh, something to say. <laughs> but uh, you mentioned that, like, when you would walk into a room and there's a way that you would be um, receptive to the moods of the other people in the room. And then you're also talking about people who um, are, you know, matter being one thing, everything one thing, in a sense. And yet there's different categories within that, um, you know, like the moods of people, uh, motion, and then a collective consciousness. Um, now, if uh, I wondered if there had been any other experiments done by some of the, the scientists here, uh, other than the monitoring of the brain patterns, to see what exact effect, like you're saying, people meditating has on physical um, realities and things that happen and um, actual uh, traditionally tangible um, things. So I was just curious if there was any uh, other experiments that we could learn about that has been done. I don't know for myself how to answer your question, except there have been many, many, many studies on transcendental meditation and um, you could go to um, where? What website? Could he? Mum. Edu, and and look around there and. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks a million. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Uh, my question is: What is it about Kyle MacLachlan that has landed him in so many of your films? Well, he's landed in two. <laughs> Plus Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks, that's right. Sorry. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> I like Kyle, and um, maybe he's kind of an alter ego, uh, but uh, more, more, the, the, the rule of thumb, obviously, is to get the right person for that role. And, and that's uh, uh, what you go for. So uh, the, the thing is, even though Kyle is my friend, if he's not right for the part, unfortunately, he doesn't get that part. And what's also really interesting is when you work with somebody, you, you've picked that person for this particular role, but now during lunch or something, you see another side of that person, and you remember that, and, and if there's another role that comes up and somebody says, well, Kyle couldn't do that, but you remember this side of him, then you say, yes, he could. And it goes like that. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Mr. Lynch. I was just wondering, as a successful working artist, what advice can you give to other aspiring creative people in today's um, world of decreasing wages and benefits for supporting themselves, but also being able to do their art? Um, it's a, it's a, such a tricky you know business. Um, you got you want to do your art, but you got to live. So you got to have a job, and then you're too tired when you finish that to do your art. And um, so much of this is is good fortune uh, that that happened to me. Um, you you can't you know figure how it happens. But I would say say. Um, Try to get a job that gives you some time, get your sleep and some little bit of food, and work as much as you can. And maybe, you know, there's, there's so much enjoy, enjoyment of doing what you love. Um, 
and maybe this uh, will will open doors and uh, everything will be you'll find a, a way to do what you love uh, and I hope you do mm-hmm. and um, and then I just have to add, you know, this this thing of you know growing inner happiness, where they say they have a phrase, balanced in success and failure. Doesn't mean you're balanced in a neutral dead zone, but you've got so much of this inner inner peace and strength that uh, you can take a failure, you can take a success, and not not you know have it destroy you. Hmm. And uh, so it goes for life when it's rough, and. Um, I just hope you find a, you know, stay true to yourself. That's all I can say. Thank you. And thank you for also co-creating the uh, music to the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me soundtrack with Angelo. Um, That's one of the most inspiring pieces of music I've heard to um, pursue my own musical dreams. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for coming, um, Mr. Lynch. Uh, you're close to the Inland Empire, but not quite there. Um, it's too bad you weren't able to come to UCR. Um, I, really, I really do understand the importance of meditation. A lot of artists and great thinkers believed in meditation. Uh, George Harrison, Allen Ginsberg, right, the, the School of Disembodied Poetics, right, bringing back deep reflection. And reading is a process of deep reflection and meditation. As Jonathan Franzen said, it, it's learning to live alone with yourself and understand yourself. And meditation is important, of course, for the civil rights movement. Uh, meditation in the form of prayer, uh, in the deep fear of the water hitting the children and the dogs and the batons. There's a real inner strength with that prayer and meditation. But is there a limit to what meditation can do? We now in a world live in great savage inequalities. And as much as I'd like to think that meditation could be this pan-utopic idea, when there's a gun in your mouth and you're in Iraq, there is a place where you can't just make yourself happy, I think. Now, you said a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is there, is there limits to no, meditation? Uh, you know... Uh, there's there's no limits, and that's the because um, uh, I've learned so much from um, uh, listening to uh, Maharishi's uh, Vedic science, the science <coughs> of consciousness. I've learned so much from listening to Dr. John Hagelin. Mm-hmm. The unified field um, is what I've learned is unbounded, infinite, and eternal. It has no boundaries. It's infinite. You can walk in one direction forever, and you won't get to the end of it. But how do we externalize that? Because if we have we live in a, a really you, you, a capitalist society where people okay. are fighting for space. Maharishi said, that, uh, "Darkness, negativity is like darkness. Don't fight the darkness. Don't even worry about the darkness. Turn on the light." Darkness goes. Turn up that light of unity. Negativity goes. Now you say, that sounds so sweet. Mm-hmm. It sounds too sweet. It sounds, sounds yeah. too sweet. Now, it's because it sounds too sweet, you don't know that these peace greeting groups have been formed on short-term tests, and every time they got together, somebody had to leave their family, leave their job, go together, do the meditation and the advanced techniques in a group, and they affected the area of that, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. those tests, reduced crime and violence, the things we measure, 
They reduced the trips to the hospital. Mm-hmm. They do re- How did they do that? How did they do that? Mm-hmm. The greatest machines on earth, human being, built to dive within, built to enliven that. They did it. They did it by enlivening that eternal, unbounded, infinite field of unity. That's how they did it. It's, it sounds sweet, but that's how they did it. Mm-hmm. And they were independently verified, these tests. Independently verified. It didn't snow all during that time. Mm-hmm. It, it just did it. It's a powerful thing. And, and so it's, it's <laughs> help, help set up some peace greeting groups, pal. Yeah. Help, me, yeah. help me out. <laughs> yeah, it's about externalizing. I mean, I do believe in the importance <laughs> of meditation. I'm not saying, I'm just saying it's so difficult to externalize it because there's been so many previous practitioners of meditation and it's never crested out to the mainstream. We've got to crest it out to the mainstream then. Thank you so out. much. Thanks a million. <laughs> Hi. So the um, description I'm hearing of the transcendental meditation is all about uh, the inner peace and bliss <coughs> and re- removing negativity. Um, but uh, but your own work contains a lot of really interesting explorations of negativity and violence and ugliness in, in the human soul. So I'm trying to not it in seems the human like, soul in the human condition. Okay, human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm trying to kind of square those two. It almost seems like those are at odds. It seems like the traditional kind of aesthetic around meditation is, is more kind of like a hippie type of thing of like, let's all just be peaceful and happy. And, and while that's you know, certainly a positive thing, it doesn't seem to have much interesting content to it. And that could be uh, a difficulty in, in selling this to the mainstream. I understand that you said a lot of beautiful things. You think when you're, you get blissful, um, you, would, you get laid back and become a hippie. <laughs> and you'd lose your edge. And you think if you're angry, you've got an edge. Anger could be like an edge. But if you're really, really angry, it's like a poison, and you can't work. If you're really, really depressed, you can hardly get out of bed. If you're kind of melancholy, and, and, you're, and the girls say, oh, he's such a genius, and he's a little bit depressed, you fall in love with that image. You're not really depressed. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're not going to lose your... I, I, I battle with that thing. I don't want to be, like, uh, laid back and be, you know, like, blissful to the point of making, like, little doilies or something. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you want to have some balls, you know what I mean? <laughs> it doesn't make you, you know... Uh, laid back and and the bliss is like power and the bliss is like energy and the bliss is like a clarity a sharpness it's a growth of intuition of a knowingness experiencing in when you dive in sometimes you get like a a jolt of pure knowingness so beautiful lights it up like you can't believe (laughs) experience that bliss vibrate in that physical, emotional, mental spiritual happiness and if someone came with a gun and pointed it right at your head if you're vibrating in that bliss you would say do what you have to do 
do what you have to do. And they'd feel something in the way you said it because it's, it's like love. And they wouldn't do it. You'd have a coffee with them. <laughs> I, 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 it sounds very strange. You start loving people. Not goofball. You're not doing Hallmark cards. <laughs> and you artists reflect the world. You get ideas from the world. You don't have to be the sufferer to show character suffering. You get more understanding. You can go deeper into a thing. Why do you want to stay on the surface? Get more and more depth. How do you do that? Expand that container of consciousness. Understand more, see more, be more aware. It's money in the bank. You'll have an edge. You'll get rid of those cramping poison things that keep you from doing what you need to do. And you'll enjoy the doing. It's like, I'm telling you, you will enjoy doing stuff. And they won't be able to stop you. <laughs> Great. Thank you very much. I got it. Oh, I got it. Mr. Lynch, uh, I just have a quick question uh, regarding your uh, daily weather report on your website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I've been a fan. I noticed last week you seemed to be sort of uh, a creature of the sun. You seemed a little down when the clouds were out. I was wondering if you, in fact, uh, if you get up and you meditate before you give the weather report and have your coffee, <laughs> and how you, how you minimize the impact of external forces, you know, such as the weather, you know, a traffic jam and stuff, and when during your daily regimen you meditate versus, you know. Right. I, I meditate when I wake up, and I meditate again in the late afternoon. And um, I love the light in Los Angeles. And I came to L.A. from Philadelphia. I thought I had died and gone to heaven when I saw, felt the light in L.A. So when it gets a little cloudy, um, you know, it's like I, I think L.A. Should, should be sunny all the time. You know what I mean? But I, I, I do, because people say the weather's always the same. But I, 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 I've noticed doing my weather report uh, that it changes quite a bit. <laughs> I do thank you for giving me the weather every morning. Thank you, <laughs> pal, for watching me. All right. <laughs> I have used the. I, 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 is it come to an end? Oh, just a few oh, more. Okay, okay. <laughs> thank you for I being here. I can meet you guys out front, uh, too. So. Um, what would you like to ask? I just, I'm being a musician myself. I just was curious as to how um, you said your ideas are separate from meditation, that you use the meditation to dive into the ideas. Don't how does dive in and get that, you know, that consciousness start to unfold, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you can catch those ideas. But sometimes they'll bubble up, you know, in the, in the, and you should keep a little pad of paper mm-hmm. and a pencil near you. Yeah, I was just curious as to how, like, the music, y- you being a musician, writing music yourself, or the music I'm that other a, people I'm write. I'm not really a musician. I play some... Uh, some well, I know you play guitar. I'm a guitar god. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, Yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just curious as to how that influences your ideas, or if the ideas that you acquire to write a film... so many ideas for scenes, characters, mm-hmm. mood in music... Mm-hmm. I love to listen to music, and, and sometimes uh, those ideas, you know, come out of it. Okay, thank you. Thanks. 
David, uh, it's a pleasure. Um, big fan. I like watching some of your movies over and over again. And that's part of the fun is just the mystery. Anyways, to the point, the thing I like most about your movies is the fire. I like in Wild at Heart the love from the fire. And in the straight story, I feel like Richard Farnsworth's character, um, he's almost like the shaman with the fire. So I was just curious, what is it that you like about fire? I Because mean, for me in my life, I, I mean, I, in reality, I go in front of the fire a lot with people, and it's something in my heart that's really beautiful. It's not just a fairy tale kind of thing, but I was wondering what I fire like is. I thing what you just said. And uh, when we sit in front of a fire, it's mesmerizing. It's, and, and it's um, magical. The same way with electricity to me. And smoke. And... Uh, Flickering lights. Thank you. How you doing? How you doing? Uh, Shock me with the uh, Captain Beefheart DVD. Thank you. Some yo-yo stuff. Very good. Very good questions. Anyways, uh, my question is Blue Velvet. I noticed you guys, for a long time, you were the longest-running DVD with Easter eggs. Uh, you had the most Easter eggs in a DVD for quite some time. This is a new thing. It's been coming around a lot more uh, now that more DVDs are coming out. People are demanding them, you know, less going to the movie theaters, more on DVD, which is another thing. Uh, you know, some people are talking about going straight to D or DVD, no longer movies, because the money's being made right when it comes out to DVD. They have the DVDs going, and it'll all be... Uh on iVideo, you know what I mean? <laughs> I know, I know what you're talking Unfortunately, I know what you're talking about. But my question is here, with, uh, with interactive DVD menus, because I do DVD authoring, I know this probably won't pertain to anyone else here besides me, but this is a selfish question, so why not? <laughs> it's a one-time opportunity. Um, do you see anything? I mean, you personally, I know your beginning of your shorts DVD, you had some intro work. You know, it goes back to it every single time you finish a short. Is there any way, because I do work as well, incorporate DVD, interactive menus, Easter egg stuff to add to the movie, kind of give it, you know, some extra insight maybe to work further, you know, in, into your own works? Is that, a, is that something you see coming along? Do you, is that even coming, you know? Eggs are okay, but uh, the director's uh, comments, um, I, I'm not into that. And we've got to um, guard the film itself. Now it's all the extras and all the add-ons, and the film just seems to get gotten lost. And so it's it's you know uh, try to see the whole film through, and try to see it in a quiet place on as big a screen as you can with as good a sound as you can. And so you can go into that world and have that experience. And then, then maybe um, a few eggs. We'll, we'll hey, they're, they're good. We'll they're good. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to read out uh, for those people that uh, don't have cards. Uh, they can write in to us at www.davidlynchfoundation.org. And I think we've got to pull the plug. Um, and I just will read one thing. May everyone be happy. May everyone be free of disease. May auspiciousness be seen everywhere. May suffering belong to no one. Peace. Thank you very much.